You're listening to Leaving Treadmarks, an Ascent Leadership Podcast, part of the Sir Wilfrid Laurier School Board. So as doctors, we always offer hope dies last, and this is something that I always tell my patients. I tell them not to think of themselves as statistical numbers because each person is their own statistical number. Welcome to Leaving Treadmarks. I'm Daniel Johnson. I work with the Swarfer Laurier School Board. Today we, today we have a big interview with Dr. Caratios, and we have a, a Facebook Live session that we taped uh, from the Montreal Children's Hospital, where he answers a lot of questions about what is COVID-19 and how we as a community can respond to it and how we take care of ourselves. So all of that is in this episode. If you have questions, you're going to want to listen to the whole thing. It is a big episode. It's long. It's well. I have, alum, I have alumni here with me too. As we walk through this new reality of living in a pandemic with no, vac- with no vaccine, living in communities that are isolated, living in social distancing, and learning a whole new way, I thought it would be good to have some people with me who are experiencing it in their own reality, and we can talk a little bit about it. So, Alexandra, I'm going to start with you. How are you doing? What are you doing? And, and what... What are you doing to fight the boredom of this new climate? Yeah, so my name is Alexandra. I'm a graduate student at Concordia University. Uh, just finished my semester, and I'm currently working at a, a pediatric clinic uh, in administration. So um, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm very busy. I'm one of the few employees left uh, at the clinic who um, pretty much takes on all the administrative tasks right now. Um, what am I doing to fight the boredom? Thankfully, I'm not as bored as uh, some of my friends or alum, or fellow alumni here because I am working five days a week. Um, but over the weekend, I think the one thing that I really look forward to or that's helping me um, stay sane is being able to connect with my friends via platforms like Zoom um, and play board games online. We've been playing Dungeons and Dragons online and a bunch of other board games. And so it's a way to feel like I'm being social and uh, play online with my friends. So um, I'll introduce Bianca. Hi, uh, thanks Alex. So I'm currently in my finals. I'm in my second year of law school. Um, I, what am I trying to fight boredom? I, I think the boredom hasn't set in yet because I'm still in finals which makes me, for the first time ever in my life, I'm afraid of what happens after my exams, uh, which is a really unsettling feeling because I think I'll just have more time to focus on what I could have been doing had we not been living this crisis now. Um, I, there were a bunch of us that got laid off at work temporarily, so that's another thing that I'm worried about. But uh, I guess I'll just, we'll talk more about that later and I'll pass the puck on to uh, Val. Valerie, you're muted. I know, I know, I realized. (laughs) Uh, My name is Valerie. Uh, I'm a sales coordinator at a hotel in Darval. I'm doing, doing fairly well to keep myself busy I've been tidying up the house and going through things that I haven't been able to go through and uh, just reading a lot of books and I'll pass it on to Tom hi everyone I'm Tom I'm also uh, a student at Concordia University it's my final year unfortunately coronavirus struck rather quickly uh, I'm also a uh, master corporal in the Royal Montreal Regiment. So one way to pass the time is that I keep track of my men and I teach them stuff online, send them videos, and keep the morale up before we get deployed if Quebec or Canada needs us. So that's how I'm staying awake. Well, it's good to virtually see you all. Thanks for sharing your time with us. I, uh, I want to jump right into the interview and Alexander and Bianca, if you could tell us a little bit about it. I want to date it a little bit just so people know when in this pandemic that we, we are talking to him. Um, he is 
He's a specialist in infectious diseases. He's a pediatrician and, and he talks to us for the Facebook uh, part, Facebook Live, the questions at the end of this interview that you'll hear. Uh, that was on April 9th, 2020. And when he spoke to us, it was April 24th, 2020. So Alexandra, can you tell us a little bit more? I think uh, Dr. Carasios is a really ideal person to interview for this type of situation because not only does he typically work with immunosuppressed and immunocompromised patients, so you get a good sense for how dangerous this virus can be for that population and what kind of suggestions he gets, but because he works in infectious diseases and um, he's a unique perspective in terms of how the virus is spread and what we can do to help um, stop that spread or, or to slow it down at least. So it's a really interesting interview because he mentions so many different topics on how medicine has had to adapt um, in this time um, to protect the immunosuppressed patients and just patients in general and of course um, staff. And I think um, he also gives us a really a lot of really good advice. He mentions some things that um, bother him a little bit and how we can help support um, our medical staff properly. So I think overall, he really is a very um, knowledgeable source of information and a very funny guy too. He's, he's very funny. What did you think, Bianca, during the, uh, the interview overall? Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I think mo mostly because I find I'm in the same boat as a lot of people where I want the right information uh, to protect not only myself, but my family but it's hard to come by and he was talking about this as well that we're kind of in the thick of it and so information is constantly changing and people are throwing out answers with the best intentions but unfortunately we don't have all the answers so it's it's learning how to focus a lens on the most pertinent information from the most reliable sources with the understanding that if and when it changes to be ready to receive that information and adjust accordingly and so I really, really enjoyed speaking to him about that. He was able to answer a lot of questions that we have, you know, for things that we um, encounter every day, like should we be cleaning our groceries? How about when children go back to school? How, how will that play around? So um, it, it was very enlightening and it was very reassuring as well because he, he, gave, we, he gave us the medicine we needed in a very palatable way. Thank you both for your help with the interview and for, for taking that on. Dr. Caratios is going to be taking the COVID-19 floor in two weeks uh, and overseeing all of that. He also uh, is a professor at McGill University. So he has a wealth of experience uh, that puts him on the front line of the conversations we're having, at least in Quebec, Canada. And his insight, we hope, will, like Bianca said, reassure you and help you navigate this portion or, or where we're at with this pandemic. So here's the interview, so here's the interview with Dr. Caradzios. We're here with, we're here with Dr. Caradzios, uh, who is a specialist and a pediatrician uh, and has a very deep work history and expertise that he's able to share with us. He's also a Swarford Laurier School Board alumni and we're, uh, we're proud to have him with us. Thank you for taking the time, doctor. Thank you, my pleasure, thank you for having me. We also have Alexandra, who's an alumni doing her master's, and Bianca, who is uh, working on her law degree uh, with us for some questions and uh, to help us navigate some of these issues around COVID-19 and around our, our situation that we're living through in this pandemic and this crisis. Uh, so doctor, can you tell us a little bit about your, what you do? Right. So, um, as you mentioned, I'm a pediatrician by training, but uh, I did special. I did um, a few extra years after I finished my pediatric residency, um, and uh, specialized in infectious diseases of of, of children. So, uh, I'm a pediatric infectious disease specialist, and I also um, am an HIV specialist. So, after I finished my infectious diseases degree, I did a couple of years of um, of training in pediatric HIV. So, um, you know, I, one, one would say that right now my specialty is the sexy specialty that everybody um, wants, to, to, wants to not be part of, but wants to have some kind of connection to because there's a lot of questions 
um, especially with this infectious pandemic that's going around right now. So what are some similarities like with HIV and AIDS uh, and with the pandemic of this virus, what are some similarities that you've seen? So um, HIV is a pandemic as well. Uh, it, uh, it started off in Sub-Saharan Africa and now pretty much every country in the world has cases of HIV. Um, it is a pandemic that's been with us since, you know, almost 40 years now. And uh, there's almost 40 million people infected throughout the world. Uh, you know, it is a, a disease that affects not only the person who has it, but it affects the people around them because, um, uh, you know, the, the, so we talk about HIV infected people, but we also talk about HIV affected people. Uh, you have families who uh, are dealing with a child who's got HIV, for instance. It's not just the child that is going through it. It is the family as well. So there are, it's a virus, HIV. It's, um, it's a transmissible virus. But um, up until there, those are the similarities. Um, if we look at biochemical or microbiological similarities, some of the drugs that we use for the treatment of HIV are being looked at uh, to treat this virus, the SARS-2 coronavirus, because they have a similar protein called a protease that uh, matures the proteins um, in the viral particle. And so we use protease inhibitors to treat HIV. And we are looking at some of these drugs to treat um, a similar enzyme that exists in the SARS-2 coronavirus. We're not very optimistic with the first few um, study results that are coming out, but nevertheless, uh, there are studies around the world on a medication called Kalitra, for instance, that may or may not have ability to, um, to inhibit at least the SARS-2 as well. Um, but as I said, early results, not so promising. Uh, up until there, that, those are the similarities. Um, you know, SARS-2 coronavirus is a different type of virus. It's not transmitted through blood or through bodily fluids, uh, through uh, sexual intercourse, for instance, or through exchange of or contact with blood. Um, and it is not transmitted from mother to child in pregnancy. It is a respiratory virus that is transmitted between people through sneezing, coughing, touching, um, you know, objects that have been uh, contaminated with uh, snot, to put it that way, or saliva. And um, yeah, and so, and maybe even from the air, airborne route, where if somebody has a procedure that produces aerosols, those aerosols can stay in the environment for, uh, you know, a few hours. And if somebody's is so unlucky to walk through some, one of this cloud of aerosols, they can also get infected. And SARS-2 coronavirus can be transmitted through stool. So those are the, the differences in the microbiology. The disease itself is, is, is completely different. I mean, this is a disease that's based in the lungs, that's causing um, uh, blood clots, uh, strokes, uh, kidney failure, um, meningoencephalitis, so like an infection in the brain, it affects the heart as well. So we are looking at a, at a very um, unique pathogen that seems to be attacking multiple systems. To be honest, that's kind of similar to HIV now that I'm talking about it live, because HIV is a great mimicker and it can, it can affect many, many uh, organ systems, but in a different way. Um, we do have some, um, uh, you know, many drugs against HIV that work. Uh, there's no cure, but there is um, a, a control of the disease. So, you know, HIV used to kill and it used to be the death bell and it used to be a huge plague back in the 80s. But nowadays, I have to say, you know, we live with HIV. You can die of old age if you get infected uh, in your 30s, let's say, and you are taking your medications very well, you will not die of HIV complications. You will die of old age because we have very good drugs and we are able to control the infection. Um, we have not achieved this kind of level of comfort yet with the SARS coronavirus. And I, I assume because of immune, uh, being immune compromised, 
that patients with HIV AIDS are at high risk with COVID-19? They are. Um, they are. We have not been describing, I mean, you know, everything is still falling into place and the, the, the dust is still settling with, uh, you know, with the studies and looking at the populations of people who are infected with SARS-2 coronavirus. Um, but, you know, we haven't seen massive amounts of HIV patients presenting with, um, with, with the disease. It would be interesting to see um, once all the data is gathered out of, you know, northern Italy and out of, um, uh, out of New York, where, you know, New York has a large HIV positive population. It would be interesting to see once all that demographic data and patient data is amassed to see how many of those patients were in fact patients who had HIV. So in theory, to have a robust immune system is a plus. Um, but, um, you know, to be immunocompromised is theoretically problematic to, to, to have SARS-2 coronavirus. Now, if you so happen to be on one of these meds that we're looking at that may inhibit coronavirus from replicating uh, this, this Kaletra or other protease inhibitors that we give to HIV patients, maybe that, you know, it's, it might come out that that might have, you know, um, shown some, uh, some protective promise. But again, this is all stuff that we don't know. And it's all theory. So um, to make a long story short, Yes, if you have a compromised immune system, in theory, you have a higher risk of severe COVID-19 disease. A few years ago, you did a, a TEDx Youth Laval talk with us. Uh, we're going to put it in the links at the bottom of, with this episode if people want to see it. You said yeah. that uh, HIV AIDS uh, will, be, will be cured, if I remember correctly, uh, within the next few years. Right. So not cured um well we're trying to decrease we the you know un aids the who the bill gates foundation um the united you know the united nations um various doctors around the world if we you know the the plan was by 20 uh, 2030 uh we were going to actually stop all transmissions of hiv from mother to child and uh, decrease the transmissions from person to person into such a level where we can effectively say we've, uh, we've cured HIV. Um, there had a massive amounts of money were, were, uh, were siphoned uh, to that effect. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I don't know what will happen now with a pandemic and where all that money is going to. Um, they are earmarked for the UNAIDS program but perhaps they, you know, some of that money will have to be siphoned uh, to, to provide for care for patients who've got COVID-19. It all remains to be seen. Uh, we were very optimistic. We were meeting a lot of good um, milestones and uh, we were able to decrease, you know, part of this is education so people who have hiv should learn should know that they have hiv so they don't transmit it so we were actually on track to you know when it first started less than 40 percent of people knew that they had hiv in the world but by the time these programs started to work there was about 60 percent 65 percent of people that knew that they had hiv almost 70 at one point uh, the latest figures um you know maternal child transmissions were decreased significantly um and uh women access to medications uh where it was increased uh, so people who had hiv had access to medications um so we were very we were going on a right track let's see what we're going to look like at the end of this uh, covid pandemic this question has two parts how do you as a medical professional practice treating this disease safely when there is no cure and also how do you communicate and how do you work with patients when the end result isn't clear when the map to becoming cured doesn't exist okay so the first thing is so the, the the first part of that second question that you asked is um in you know how do we protect ourselves well we protect ourselves you know we first of all we have to understand what kind of a virus it is and its transmission 
capabilities. If it's a droplet transmission virus, then we have infection control practices that tell us that we have to protect ourselves against large droplets. So wearing a surgical mask, not an N95 respirator mask, which is those you know, round or duck-billed uh, masks that are very tight fitted to the face and they filter 95% of particles. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Just a surgical mask to protect physically our face, uh, you know, goggles or a face shield and uh, gloves and a, and a gown. Uh, these are the standard droplet contact type precautions that we take for those kind of viruses. If it is a virus like Ebola, for instance, that is, um, you know, droplet in contact, but produces a lot of bleeding and diarrhea and vomiting, then the masks, sorry, then the gloves and the, um, uh, more importantly, the, the gowns are impermeable. And uh, we have to wear protective uh, gear on our feet. Uh, it's more of a you know, full cover thing because we don't want to be soiled with infected um, body, bodily fluids like blood, for instance, because Ebola causes a lot of bleeding. Um, if it is a virus that is airborne, then we take airborne precautions. So the patient is placed into a, what's called a negative pressure room. That means that the pressure inside the room is less than the pressure outside of the room. So everything that is outside, meaning the air in the hallway, is sucked into the patient's room. Not the other way around, because we don't want whatever viral particles this patient is coughing up or sneezing to escape on an air current, and when the door opens, it leaves the room and it goes outside. So no, you want the, 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 the room to be negative, the pressure. So when you close the door, that seal is there and everything that's inside the patient's room is contained inside the patient's room. So that's number one. Then we wear the N95 respirator. Then we wear, you know, usually it's airborne droplet contact. So it's, you know, you wear your, your gown, you wear your, your, your mask, you wear your gloves, you wear your face shield. Um, and, you know, we take those precautions. Um, so we know there's infection control that we and infection control protocols that we follow to prevent us from getting infected and to prevent other people that are in the hospital to get infected as well. Um, and then how do we deal with giving a patient knowing that you know some things that we do are going to be futile, um, especially since we don't have therapies yet, especially since we don't have a vaccine yet. I mean, we try our best. What we do is we try to, then we start to compartmentalize things. If the patient is having difficulty breathing, with, you know, we put them on a ventilator. If the patient has difficulty with their blood pressure, we give them blood pressure medications to raise the blood pressure if they are shocky and the blood pressure drops, for instance. If they are seizing, we give them anti-seizure medications. If they have blood clots, we give them anti-clotting medications. So, you know, we try our best to deal with the symptoms until, and, and, and we do a lot, we, everyone now, as you can see, is doing a lot of experimental, even to the point of compassionate type of, um, you know, last ditch efforts to try to give whatever we can to save the patient. So, you know, you might have heard hydroxychloroquine in combination perhaps with azithromycin is being given. An anti-Ebola drug is being tr tried called rendesivir. Um, um, uh, plasma from or antibodies from people who've recovered with uh, from COVID-19 is now being transfused into patients to try to pr see if that has any effect. These anti-HIV drugs, Kaletra, for instance, seems to, you know, is, is being looked at. So there's a, a large amount of research and a large amount of experimentation that is happening live in real time as we speak. So, and then once this dust settles, we will start to see a light at the end of the tunnel and say, wait a second, so Kalitra is not working, but maybe remdesivir is. So then we start to change our minds and tell and, and you know, release information saying, we, our study shows that remdesivir is working, or our study shows that hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin is working. And um, you know, you've all seen it. One study says this, then another group says, no, it doesn't work for us. It just causes confusion, but we are trying our best. I must say, though, that I'm kind of lucky 
because I'm a pediatric infectious disease specialist, not an adult infectious disease specialist. My adult infectious disease specialist colleagues are overwhelmed, not overwhelmed, but very, very busy. Um, you know, the adult ICUs are pretty much full uh, with COVID-19 patients and uh, the hospitals are, you know, the wards are starting to fill up as well uh, with these patients. Pediatrics, you know, kids don't seem to get very sick with it. And, uh, you know, we, yeah, you've heard of, you know, the odd baby dying or the odd child getting very sick, but overall the pediatric ICUs are kind of empty and the pediatric emergency rooms are kind of empty. Uh, these kids, kids do not get very sick with COVID-19. And so um, I, you know, I've, I'm lucky in that way. Of course, we, we have what's called COVID floors, even in the pediatric ward. And I will be head of it in uh, three weeks time. Um, but that's where we, you know, have children who are either COVID positive and need to come into hospital because they're dehydrated or they, they need uh, a little bit of oxygen and they usually do very well. Or these are kids who come into the emergency room who've got fever and a cough and we're, we're, they have to come in because they need a little oxygen and we're waiting on their COVID results. So uh, the turnaround is very fast because children you know, either don't have COVID and go home or children do well and end up going home. So I'm lucky from that standpoint. Um, you asked me about the first part of the two major questions was how do vaccines, how are vaccines created? Okay, so it's a very complex thing, but I'll try to make it very easy for you and for people to understand. The point of a vaccine is to mimic natural infection without making the patient ill. And by mimicking natural infection, you're stimulating the immune system uh, so it's like a workout for the immune system. That immune system then will create antibodies and immune memory cells. So it will create a, um, a you know a garrison of soldiers to get rid of the infection or to protect you from uh, if you if your body ever sees this infection, this specific infection again, and keep reserve a reserve army in place, um, a memory army that will come to the aid of your body if you are so infected again with the same thing. So you want to, you want to stimulate the immune system and irritate it in such a way, because this is how you know, reality is, you have to irritate your immune system, put a noxious agent in your body that won't make you sick, but will stimulate it to remember it in the future. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying, the first thing that has to happen is they have to isolate this virus, which they have. They have to weaken it some way so it doesn't kill the host. And when I'm talking about the host, I'm talking about firstly, animals. So in a lab somewhere, they're going to you know, inject this or infect monkeys or, um, you know, whatever animal they're working with that, uh, that, can that can cause an infection. And then they're going to draw blood and they're going to see whether this monkey or this, uh, you know, another type of animal uh, has reacted with antibodies. And if they're satisfied with this, and if they're satisfied that this animal is now not sick, because they do follow and they do blood tests and they do, you know, it's very stringent and very rigorous to produce a vaccine then they're going to try that vaccine on humans. And once they try it on humans, they do the same thing where they inject it. They make sure the humans do not get sick. They follow them. They do blood tests and they do, more importantly, measurements of antibody levels. Then what they have to do is they're going to have to infect the human with the, the, the coronavirus and see if they respond or if they respond positively, meaning they don't get sick. Of course, by the time they get to that, they have to do all that stuff to animal studies first. And uh, that's going to take time. And this is, why, this is why vaccines are not that easy to produce and it's not something that you can get ready um, and, and going in like a couple of weeks. So uh, more like a few months.
this is something I kind of say at the beginning of every time that I do this. I have a nine-month-old puppy who has decided that squirrels are persona non grata in our house. And so if she barks, I'm sorry, I'll deal with it as quick as I can. Well, I thought you were going to ask me about whether or not your pet can get infected with COVID. Because <laughs> I was going to say cats can, apparently. Apparently, yeah, right. something like that, or they can be carriers or something as no, well. But they can go. They can also get sick. The tigers yeah. in the Bronx. The tigers in the Bronx Zoo are, um, you know, got sick and were showing symptoms of COVID. And yeah, and they they, they can carry it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I don't think dogs. So don't worry about that yet. <laughs> okay. Um, so I think. Okay, I'd like to start off on maybe a little bit of a lighter note, but it is a question that I've had for a really long time. Okay. Why are dermatologists the butt of every medical joke? <laughs> well, they are. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's maybe because they, they, they spend their day looking at rashes and it's kind of gross. I don't know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but, you know, even, even now, believe it or not, up until like a few days ago, people were like saying, oh, you know, the only specialty that doesn't have... Um, that doesn't have to worry about COVID-19 is dermatology. And then, of course, there's all these studies now and all these reports of people having weird rashes with, uh, with COVID. And so here come the dermatologists again. <laughs> so they finally get their time to shine is what you're saying. They do. They, do. they have their time. Okay. Well, thank you for answering that question. Problem? Um, I think... I've, I've been wondering lately why there's this dichotomy but dichotomy between like the children and the adults. Why are children so able to resist this? Yeah, I don't think we know. Um, there, the, you know, respiratory viruses usually are, um, are transmitted and, and the, the, the epidemic is fueled by children. I mean, you know, I call them, I call children bioterrorists. They go to, they go to the little their bioterrorist camps, also known as daycares, and then they spit and they, 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 they slobber all over each other and sometimes even smear stool all over each other. And then this is how they come back to, you know, home and they transmit it to everybody else. And so this is how the transmission dynamics are. What's interesting is that even though SARS coronavirus, SARS-2 coronavirus, uh, and even back when we looked at SARS-1 at SARS coronavirus, Children do not seem to be the, the major vectors for it. And um, it's, an, it's, it's a peculiarity. Um, you know, uh, another disease that is easily transmissible um, is tuberculosis. Children do not seem to be the, ve the major vectors for transmission because they don't cough as forcefully as an adult and spit out all this stuff. Even though we th intuitively think children walking around and coughing and licking everything, but in reality, they cough, um, you know, a little bit, a little bit, you know, they, they don't sit there like a huge, like a, like a big adult and, and, you know, cough up all this stuff. So maybe that is the answer. At least that's the answer for TB. Um, I think that the, the, the dust is still settling on SARS-2-CoV. What we do know from observations of places that have had the, the, you know, the curve, have had the, the outbreak before North America, uh, children do not seem to be getting sick um, and, and have not been identified as major vectors of transmission. In families where uh, you know, children have gotten ill. They haven't they haven't transmitted it to their parents, um, and uh, yeah, and the other way around. When parents were sick, the children got very mild illness or nothing at all. So this is where the idea behind uh, all this uh, um, information is coming from. So. Then I guess the next natural question is, is if you take that information and I, I would assume we kind of need to take it with a grain of salt because then a lot of leaders are then saying, well, then children should be allowed to go back into schools and have in-person classes, especially in a time before we have the vaccine and conceivably in September, we still will not have a vaccine. There's a very high likelihood. There's, there's almost no way. 
how did those two work together? So I think, uh, you know, part of the thinking of public health officials is that school is very important for children. Um, The Association of Pediatricians of Quebec sent a letter yesterday to uh, Premier Legault and to the government of Quebec saying that, you know, gradually and slowly opening up schools is uh, an important step in maintaining children's health, both mental, uh, both, not both, but mental health, emotional health, um, educational health, and in some cases, physical health. There are lots of children who uh, depend on, um, depend on breakfasts in, in, in some of these daycares, depend on food, from some of these daycares. There are some children who are living in an abusive household. So, um, you know, the stress of being locked down um, on somebody who has the tendency to be abusive, uh, the, the, uh, the stress of losing a job and, uh, and or maybe losing your house. And, and, and so, and the fact that people, you know, maybe drinking more or maybe dependent on substances puts these kids at danger. So, um, you know, it's also very difficult to deal with children who you have to entertain 24, not 20, well, yeah, now 24 seven. You know, I have, uh, I have a three year old almost and a one year old almost. And, you know, I get up and I go to work in the morning because I've got patients to see, but my poor wife, (laughs) they're driving her nuts. And so, you know, we're able to handle it and I'm able to leave a little bit earlier sometimes and help her out. Um, but some families cannot and their coping mechanisms might not be as, 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 as good as some others. And unfortunately, some of these kids will suffer with either abuse or yelling or anything like that. So, um, and children need to learn. Children need to, children need to go to school to interact with other kids. You know, it's a bit of a social experiment, um, opening up schools. It is. We, you know, we have to, we have to call it, um, but it's kind of like an educated guess that we're having. And this isn't, it's coming from observations of studies, small studies that I spoke to you about, looking at countries around the world that did not close schools, such as Hong Kong and, uh, and Sweden, for instance. And the fact that you know, children there did not account for the transmission of the virus through the community. Um, You know, I have my opinions about that. Hong Kong closed down uh, very quickly, um, uh, as did Taiwan, for instance, and they didn't have as many cases out there. So I don't know if we can say that how many children were the ones that were infected. Sweden, on the other hand, has not closed schools. And they are going for this, and maybe we can talk about this later, this herd immunity that they want as many people to be infected as possible. Uh, So then they can form antibodies and have an immunity of the herd. So when the next wave of COVID-19 comes around, which we're thinking is probably going to be in the fall, then the population as a whole is faring better. In Sweden, children do not account for a large amount of people, even though they've been allowed to, you know, um, to have schools open. And they estimate that they are probably a one to two percent responsible for transmission. Um, Of course, Sweden has paid a price where the death per million population is higher than their neighbors and some of the other European countries. Uh, like Greece, for instance, that closed, locked down within, uh, you know, three or four days after the first case appeared in the, in, in the country. And uh, they estimate that children would have been about 10% responsible for the transmission. Um, you know, the deaths, the deaths in Greece in a comparably um, uh, population similar country have, uh, have been very low compared to some other countries who, uh, who are not handling it very well. Uh, now, of course, Greece had other reasons to stop. Uh, they knew that the number of ICU beds that they had in the country were not sufficient. They were able to double them during their lockdown. And it's a success story. Um, but, you know, their, their, their schools have been closed. That is one of the first countries to close schools. Uh, they closed them on March the 10th. 
when everywhere else around the world, except for China, of course, schools were, were still open. So it remains to be seen when we open up schools, what happens. And these studies that show that children don't shed the virus as easily and don't transmit it to others are, we're cautiously optimistic, cautiously confident that if we start to perhaps open up maybe a few schools here and there, and then we know the incubation period of this virus is two weeks, and, step, and, and wait and see what happens, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, if we don't see cases rising like crazy, then perhaps we can be a little bit more emboldened and open a few more schools. But I stress that it has to be the younger kids and, and which social distancing is not easy in younger kids than the older kids, because we're not sure, uh, you know, a 17 year old, an 18 year old, I think they're going to act like an adult and they're going to be able to transmit. So therein lies the whole thought process of the government asking to open up schools. But we have to be very careful. If children are not the, the population of transmitters, and they are not driving the epidemic, then what the government says is that we want to have herd immunity because we want to, you know, infect all the kids. And since they're not, they're going to do well, they're going to cause herd immunity. That's not the population that, that you're targeting because they're not going to transmit. So it's a, herd immunity is irrelevant for children at this point. It's adults that need to attain the herd immunity. And unfortunately, we're going to have to um, swallow that bitter pill and, and allow for some sick adults and maybe even some really sick adults and deaths to happen in order for herd immunity to be achieved, just like Sweden. So, yeah, I, I guess it kind of becomes, it's like a double-edged sword at that point. Um, so I guess with schools, you can kind of conceive that, um, not better, but again, we're cautiously optimistic. You're having an educated guess. There's now an idea to relax restrictions with regard to outdoor festivals and other things that are that, yeah, that's especially like even towards the end of the summer, New Brunswick, I know, is a province that's uh, already started to put in like, I think phase one of their idea. Mm -hmm. It's too soon um, for us to, we're not even peaked in Quebec yet to start talking about restricting things, you know. Um, the, you know, of course, the epidemic is going wild inside our old folks homes in the, in, in the you know, the long-term care facilities. But, you know, we have to also, you know, the, we have to also talk about the adults that are in the ICU. Um, about a third of them are below 50 years old. So it's not like only the elderly um, and only the ones in long-term care facilities. It's also the younger uh, ones that are in the middle age that, that uh, and some of them don't necessarily, they're not obese, they're not smokers, they're not diabetics, they're not cancer patients, they're not, they're not. Um, some of them are being intubated uh, you know, because they've got really bad COVID-19 disease and they would be usually healthy. I mean, last week, you know, I, I can say that we, 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 the children's hospital um, has been seeing some spillover from the, the adult hospitals because they're overfull. And so they've sent some of the adult patients over to us. We had that, that mandate up until a few days ago and we were transferred people in their thirties or in their forties. So, you know, we have to think about that as well. Um, it's not just let's open up and festivals and this and that. I, I think it's too soon right now to talk about that, especially congregating large amounts of adults together. And I think social distancing has to happen for months until we get a vaccine. I think that, you know, I'm not so sure, I don't know how major league sports are going to happen uh, unless they happen, um, you know, uh, in a closed arena with no, with no spectators. I don't know how festivals are going to happen unless they all go virtual. Um, you know, I see the Olympics were pushed, which is a good idea. Japan was kind of hiding behind their, their fingers saying, oh, we don't have a problem. We don't have a problem. But, you know, there is a problem. And you can't, you know, if the nation, if the world is locked down, how are the athletes going to train? 
they can't leave their houses. Um, if they're going to congregate into a big, big, um, you know, athletes village and uh, thousands and thousands of people are going to be shaking hands and, you know, competing, sweaty, this, that, uh, it, it was a recipe for disaster. Um, history has also taught us that if we open too quickly, um, a second wave will be bad. So, you know, the 1918 great influenza pandemic, uh, after the first wave was gone and soldiers returned home, there was a huge parade in San Francisco, the sports stadiums opened up, every, and then the big wave hit, and it was deadlier than the first. So we have to be very careful. In my opinion, I think we're way, way uh, away from having festivals and concerts and uh, sports uh, things, uh, large crowds gathering um, for a while. All right. Uh, thank you for framing that in a way that it, it's easy to understand, yeah. but also we're getting the information that we need because I feel that it's kind of hard right now to do that because right. we're still in the thick of it and we don't have that 2020 vision yet. Exactly. And you know what? It's, as, a, as a scientist, I've understood that it's okay to say, and people will trust you more if you say, look, I don't know. We don't know. But this is what we're thinking, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing about my questions is that um, I've been an admin in a GMF for 18 months now, and things have changed so drastically, um, obviously, in the last two months. So a lot of my questions are more on how you guys are able to sort of maintain your status quo while also having to deal with this kind of issue. So like, for example, for, for your patients um, in your HIV clinic who are immunosuppressed, how are they able to maintain their follow-ups if they're afraid of going to the hospital or if, they're, or if they, you can't even see them because you don't want to put them at risk? So like, how do you maintain a semblance of normalcy or status quo to help those patients get right. their follow-ups that they need so part of the mitigation strategy was to to cancel all elective surgeries uh to cancel all non-essential clinics and to keep only essential clinics open um the number of patients that i've seen that i'm seeing has gone like physically seeing has gone way down in the last month um, i mean you know usually if i have a clinic that has 10 20 patients in it maybe three or four and you know with live patients coming in, maybe one or two, um, uh, the rest, we are mandated, we are mandated, no, but we are allowed to do Zoom virtual calls and or phone calls. So this is what I've been doing. Um, you know, I've also been lucky this month that this was my month to teach infectious diseases to the first year medical class at McGill. And so I usually have no um, clinical uh, responsibilities during this month, and I just go to the university and I teach. Um, of course, the, you know, nowadays it's a little bit different. I'm teaching virtually uh, to students, you know, to, imagine 225 students listening to me talk like this, and then slides going on and on, and then even exams. Are, are, are via computer and, you know, the, the logistics behind that, you know, are they, can they cheat? Can they not cheat? Uh, can they open up their books? At this point, it doesn't matter. Even if they open up their books, they're learning. Yeah. So, so we, 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 we moved around that whole process of rigid thinking about how we do education. Now, in terms of clinics, I think this pandemic has shown us how many patients actually do need to be in hospital and do need to come to the emergency room? The emergency room, the pediatric emergency room is pretty much empty. Whereas they, saw, they would see 250, 300 you know, patients a day sometimes. Now they're seeing 40, 50 a day. And you know, I, you know, you go to the, you know, I, I have an app that shows me how many patients are waiting in the emergency room and all this kind of stuff. You know, on, on, on a typical day like this last year, uh, you know, during influenza season, because we still are in influenza season, during influenza season, it would be like 50 patients waiting, you know. Now it's like 10, you know. Some of my friends call me, he's like, okay, um, I, my, my kid has a fever and a cough. What do I do? I'm like, well, and he's not drinking. But I'm like, maybe you should go to the emergency room. Can I? Should I? Of course you could. Of course you should. You know, life goes on. The hospital doesn't close. 
And FYI, there's only 10 people there. So you're not going to wait long, you know? So, you know, this is what, you know, we've, we've, we've learned to understand that after all this is said and done, we have to change the way we even practice medicine. You know how many patients love the fact that I can call them and they're in their home and their kid is sitting on the, on their lap. They don't have to miss work. They, you know, they don't have to, um, you know, miss five hours during the day going to, a, you know, getting, getting ready, going to the hospital, um, you know, waiting an hour to see the doctor, then leaving again and all this kind of stuff. And I tell them, you know, I, obviously I cannot examine them, but if they're well, if they're, you know, my HIV patients, for instance, if it's a kid who's been on HIV medications and who's controlled and whose virus is undetectable and, you know, I talk to them and they're like, yeah, I feel great. Uh, or the mother's saying the kid's running around and coloring and happy all day. What am I going to find that's abnormal on a physical exam on this kid? Nothing, nothing. Obviously, if there are symptoms, I will invite them to then come in and see me. But it's just that patient that I'm going to see. You understand? So, so if they need blood work to be done, you know, I tell them, listen, the blood test center is open. I can do everything by computer. Send the requisition in. Don't even, you don't even come by my office. You just show up with your card and the requisition is electronic and it's waiting for you. Just come in and go home. Tell me, call me and tell me you've done the blood work so I can double check it. You need medications prescribed. Pharmacists are not, are not preferring you send paper because they don't want, you know, to be infected through if somebody sneezed on a paper and all this kind of stuff. So what I do is I, I tell them, give me the phone number of your pharmacy. I call in a prescription for six months, you know, renewal up to six times, one month with six repeats. See you in six months. If there's a problem, call me. So this is how we've managed um, so far to deal with the patients that we have to see. And the patients that we can see via the phone and are comfortable by doing that. And the government is starting to understand that this is a major way forward to keep the healthcare system going. And if this goes well, I have to say, parents are very happy with that. And, you know, if to have somebody on the phone like this and say, listen, what is this? You know, I might say, look, I can't tell, or, you know, my kid's ear hurts. Okay, if that's the case, you come. But, you know, can you look at the way the kid is breathing? Can you, can you look at the way the kid looks? Uh, you know, this is telemedicine. And it's, I think it's the wave of the future. You know, there's going to be even apps that um, might be created where you put your thumb on the, on the, on the, on the, on the, on the app and it, it measures your blood pressure. It measures your heart rate. Um, it can even, you can even listen to somebody's chest um, if they take a deep breath. So this is all technology that will eventually have to be um, uh, made more mainstream and streamline our medical services. Yeah, I noticed that um, in the clinic where I work, a lot of the doctors have been using telemedicine um, and they've done it for a fair number of people, well, most of them actually, like in, in a typical day, uh, the doctors will see maybe one or two newborns only. So right. that's, that's, that's what I've been seeing as a, as a, as a uh, common way to go about this. And, and for us too, the parents are generally pretty happy and it's cool to see from a doctor's perspective that, they, that the, the patients are happy with it too. Um, you mentioned a lot earlier, way earlier, um, that things have changed a lot in three weeks. And I've noticed too that we constantly get new advice from Santé Publique, from literally every corner. How do you manage to uh, cope with all of this changing advice and all of this different... Every day I feel like I'm learning something new and, and the director of the clinic comes up to me and says, oh, by the way, we're starting to do this now. You, you should do things a little bit this way. How... I don't even know how I'm wrapping my head around it. How are you yeah. doing it as, as doctors? I walk in in the morning and it, uh, I sift through about a hundred emails. Um, I go through the, I, I see the ones, I delete the ones that I think are not going to be very important, like survey this and, uh, you know, um, can you answer some questions about a survey about baby formula or, uh, you know, and, and I focus in on, important questions coming from infection control, not questions, important emails coming from infection control, important messages coming from the head of the hospital. Um, and, you know, my brain is about to, to explode by the end of all of that. So yes, we are going through a lot of information overload and uh, I try not to miss any emails. Of course, I live among people who are infectious disease specialists. So I can just get up and like, oh, wait a second, what was that about again? So I get up and I, 
you know, go knock on the door of my infection control colleague and say, what was that information that you sent out? I couldn't read the email. I'm sorry. Or I, I deleted it by mistake. So we also have our, 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 our meetings, for instance, where we sit down and we update each other on anything new. So I'm up to date on that. Um, but yes, there's a lot of information overload. For instance, just an example, when we ran out of N95 masks, the N95 mask that fits me, that respirator, uh, that, that specific respirator that molded specifically for my face. This is why I get annoyed when I see people walking around with N95s in society because, you know, those are not necessarily fitted for your face. Um, so when we ran out of those, there was, an, there was an email saying, you know, we're looking at washing them or like, you know, um, sterilizing them. So this is what you need. These are the steps that you need to do. So me coming up in three weeks to manage the COVID floor, you know, I worry that if I'm only allowed one mask a day, um, I, what do I need to do to not contaminate myself when you know, the, the outside of the mask is contaminated? So how do I remove it properly? Where do I put it to, in order to, for it to be sterilized, et cetera? Then the next, you know, in the next few days, they said, well, we got a new shipment from another company called Moldex, not 3M. So if you had this mask that fit for your face, so here I am looking at my, my identity card, my ID card and on the back, there's the little sticker that told me what mask I, I, you know, so I don't remember, so I don't forget. Then they're like, if you had this mask, these are the masks that you should look at. So then I had to write down the masks that I should look at. Then, then, you know, you should go get fit tested for those. So it's, this is the kind of information that we, you know, that we're dealing with every single day or, you know, um, COVID now can be transmitted through stool. So if you flush the toilet, if it's a high efficiency flush toilet, it can produce droplets and aerosols. So close the lid when you flush. So these are all things that we have to, uh, you know, deal with every single day. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm exhausted. No, I, I understand that too. Like, I mean, even just working admin, like I, I get home and I'm like, okay, what was different today from yesterday and what's going to end up being different tomorrow. I get, I'll get an email at 11 PM being like, Hey, listen, this is a new question you have to ask on the phone. Now, this is a, a third question. Like here's, here's another, another three. And yeah. I totally understand what it feels like to just get home and be like, okay, whew, that was a lot of information for one day. Um, oh, yes. I, I think building, building on, on that sort of thing, what do you think is the most important for like interagency cooperation between like, you guys on your floor, but then again, the hospital as a whole, and then Santé Publique as a whole, and then, you know, everything, like, in terms of just being able to pick out what information is important, and, and what, and how to sort of go about all the rules for all the agencies, like, I feel like it's a lot of stuff to go through. It is, but, um, you know, I think that it's important to maintain that, that strategic hierarchy where the, the, you know, there's a message from the ministry that is sent out that is picked up by the regional um, health boards that then send it out to the hospitals that then the infection control of the hospital um, uh, gets to it and disseminates the information. There, it's, it's a delicate and coordinated dance that needs to happen. And how do you sort of manage that delicate coordinated dance? Well, thank goodness I don't, because I'm not the one, I'm not the infection control officer, but my infection control officers are going crazy. They're pulling their hair out, you know? Uh, because they they have to maintain, you know, they're some of them sometimes are still there at the hospital, you know, because they're dealing and sifting through all that information that's coming through. They have their lives too, their personal lives, which is, you know, at the end of all this, I think we all need to to go on vacation. <laughs> yeah. So it's not that it's not that it's not that easy, and and uh, I'm very proud though of my colleagues, and I'm actually very proud of the way Quebec has handled it. Um, there have been missteps, um, but uh, overall, I think we are very much more coordinated and have acted very very uh, efficiently in this province compared to, uh, you know, some places like in the United States. You're welcome. <laughs> I have a. A question about um, about us as patients, uh, as a society. So you you deal with patients that are dealing with uh, pretty severe diagnosis, and all the grief that goes through that, um, fear, anxiety. I think are we as 
people are dealing with varying degrees of that, depending if you have kids or don't have kids or you're isolated alone, um, struggling financially. What would your advice or what's your strategy to try to help people move from the fear and grief and the unknown to a place of hope? So as doctors, we always offer hope. Hope dies last, and this is something that I always tell my patients. I tell them not to think of themselves as statistical numbers because each person is their own statistical number. Um, I tell them that, you know, trust me. Uh, do you, you know, I asked, I, I remember even like an HIV patient that I had that was dying and uh, she had given up. This was like uh, about 13 years ago, 14 years ago. And uh, she had given up and she and her parents had enough. And this was, they wanted to put her into palliative. You know, she was a 12 year old girl that weighed like 20 kilos. Right. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I had just come back from Miami after doing a research year and there were new drugs that were coming out on the market. And uh, I, I sat down with the parents and I said, I think I can get them. I can plead with the company to release them for me. There are, there's no pediatric formulation, but let's crush them and give it to her. And let's put a hole in the, uh, on her abdominal wall and connect it directly to the stomach, a gastrostomy, so she doesn't have to taste the bitterness. Uh, let's do all that. Can, do you trust me? I'm telling you she's going to do fine with this. Um, I have a feeling. And they, they trusted me. And, and this kid turned around. I mean, you could write the book on AIDS with this kid. And this kid turned around, and she is now a 24-year-old, 25-year-old who's been transferred to the adult side and who's doing well. And so this, imagine, this kid was ready to give up her life uh, because she was so fed up with meds that weren't working, bitter medications. You know, she was not swallowing things well. She was basically dying of AIDS. And now she's thriving. And, you know, obviously I told him it's going to be a rough few years. So after a couple of years, the whole, the gastrostomy was removed. So she's able to eat by mouth. Um, you know, she, she's, she's able to swallow pills properly now. She's gained like, you know, 20 kilos, 25 kilos. And, you know, the most important thing in her life right now is uh, boyfriends and how to, how to have a relationship because she's a young woman living with AIDS, living with HIV, not AIDS, sorry, living with HIV, that's her main concern. And her main concern is not to survive right now. And so, you know, we offer hope and we tell parents, you know, even in this COVID thing, you have to offer hope. You have to say, look, trust me, we will, you know, uh, I, will, I will try to get as much as I can uh, to help you. And, uh, uh, and you'd be very surprised. Most of it, not you'd be very surprised, actually. Uh, most parents, most, most patients do trust you. You know, they see you as somebody who is trustworthy and somebody who is there to help them. And they put their, their, they, they, they put their life on the, you know, they, they give you their life to, 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 to trust. You know, they say, I trust you with my life. This is what I wanted to say. Yeah. And how do we support you? How do, we support you? Uh, how do you support me? Uh, I mean, you know, that's that's now, you know, I usually talk a lot. And now you've got me not talking because I don't know how you how you can support me. I think that what irritates me the most is when people lose trust in physicians for absolutely no reason because of conspiracy theories. I think that this is what irritates me the most. I'm on social media and, you know, I get bombarded with people sending me, look at this video. You, you know, there's a lie. It's 5G that's causing this. And Bill Gates wants to put, you know, microchips inside us. And this is what irritates me the most. It doesn't help me. Um, you know, I didn't go to school for all these years to, to start believing in conspiracy theories and to start thinking that, you know, there's a one world government that's going to happen and all this is to control our minds. and uh, It's insulting. And so that's one thing that, that, that's a pet peeve of mine. And so if, if people can stop doing that and listen to, you know, reliable sources and not believe conspiracy theories, that would help me and support me. Um, on an emotional level, 
you know, hey, hey, how are you? I appreciate that. Many of my friends reach out to me and say, how are you doing today? How are you feeling today? You know, thank goodness I have a, a loving wife and, a, and, and two lovely kids and a great extended also supports me. And this is something that is important to me as well. Um, you know, I am a religious man. And so my faith also support, you know, um, supports me. Uh, uh, it does not allow me to lose hope. And um, yeah, and the, the little gestures here and there, I do appreciate Ultramar. I do appreciate Mandy's for, you know, saying services are free for healthcare workers over the next few days. The important thing is, is I want the government to be on my side and I want the government to, 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 you know, to say, we have enough masks for you. We're looking out for you. We have enough personal protective equipment for you. Uh, we're looking out for you. These are some of the things that I, uh, that I, that I appreciate as a physician and that helped me. And how are you and your team? How are you guys doing? We're good. We're good. I have to say, uh, we're good. Um, we are blessed that we're pediatric infectious diseases specialists, but we're good. We are, you know, my infection control colleague um, is going through a lot, uh, you know, both professionally and personally right now, because she has to deal with so much. And she, you know, the, the health of the hospital is in, you know, the she balances the health of the hospital right now. And, you know, a misstep here and there, um, you know, can, can mean disaster or can mean, um, you know, a setback. And so she's trying her best to, to stay abreast and ahead of the field and she's doing a wonderful job. But um, overall, we're, we're, we're okay. Uh, we, uh, as a whole in Quebec, have been able to contain this, um, this virus and this outbreak much better than our colleagues over in Italy, much better than our colleagues over in the United States, where it's just um, craziness right now. Well, thank you, doctor. Uh, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for your insight. Thank and, you. Uh, for, yeah, for helping us understand a little bit better. Thank you. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you, Bianca. Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you, Mr. Johnson. Daniel, have a good night. Stay yeah. safe. Wash your hands. Don't touch your faces and all that stuff. Absolutely. All will be well. Everything will be okay. In part two, Dr. Caratzios answers questions that we're all asking. You can find it in the Leading Treadmarks feed. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Ascent Leadership at asm.swlsb.ca in partnership with Desjardins that shows the show. Protect yourself, protect yourself, protect others, protect others. We're all